Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, and we'll begin with verse 1. I'd like to take us down to at least verse 13, and then we have some information I'd like to read to you concerning verse 13 because of the fact that in verse 13, almost all commentaries that you read have one idea in mind, and that is that it's speaking to the whole of the Christian faith and of all believers everywhere, instead of the local church. And that's generally the view that's held by everyone. In fact, if you have a Schofield Bible, that's the view he holds when we get to the 13th verse and on down, that the one body refers to a universal body of believers instead of the local congregation of believers. But I'd like to read you some information that I have that I believe will help us to understand or at least to face up to both views, there is another view. And sometimes we only look at one side and we hear it so long we think, well, that's the way it's got to be. And it may or it may not be if we hear one side so long. But let's read verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Now evidently, if there was not some dispute and some misunderstanding about spiritual gifts. Uh, in the Corinthian church, Paul was writing to them. There would have not been any need for Paul to say here that he would not have them to be ignorant. In other words, he wanted to correct them and make sure that they understood a little bit about spiritual gifts because of the fact that he wanted to show them the difference between what maybe they were standing for and what was really true. He said, I would not have you to be ignorant wouldn't have you to remain in darkness about these things. And he says in verse 2, You know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. He wants to remind them that uh, they need to look back and remember their past life, and that, of course, the memory of their past life should keep them humble, because they had just come out of idolatry and gross, deep sin, and he wanted them to be reminded of the fact that they were delivered from those things wherein they were once held, and now, if they were going to advance in spiritual things, they should also remember that they couldn't be proud about their spirituality. You know, there's no better way to keep us humble than to remind us of what we once were and what we are now by the grace of God. What we once were and what we are now should cause us to realize that it's only by the grace of God that there is, there's any difference. Now, if you want to see what they once were, you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. Paul says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he reminds them there of the fact that some of them were adulterers and fornicators and extortioners and all of those things that he mentions, of which cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So that should keep them humble. 
Even though some of these Corinthians were proud of their spiritual gifts, we'll find in the 13th chapter, verse 1, Paul shows that spiritual gifts can certainly be misused if you do not have one thing that tops the whole list, and that is love. Love must be supreme regardless of what kind of gift a person professes to have or may indeed have. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, 1, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, we use the word charity here, but it really is love, have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And he goes on to tell of the prophecies and understanding mysteries and have the gift to have all faith and everything. And he says, and have not charity, I'm nothing. And you could go on and on and show how that without love that these gifts could be certainly misused. Now then, back in our text, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2, he reminds them that they were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. That's the way they all lived, and they were led to live in that, that way. In verse 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. Now then, why would Paul have to say this? Why would Paul use this in telling them not to be ignorant of spiritual gifts unless some were claiming to be speaking by the Spirit of the Lord and yet there was absolutely the reverse in their language, calling Jesus accursed. The Holy Spirit would never inspire one to speak lightly of Jesus, and especially to call Jesus accursed. So that wouldn't be the work of the Spirit. And Paul is definitely stating that fact. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is given to glorify Christ. And he certainly would not speak to anyone and give them the opposite words and call Jesus accursed, and they claim to be doing it by the Spirit of God. If you have the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 14 says, He shall glorify me, Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit. He shall glorify me, and he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. So if the Holy Spirit is sent to glorify Christ, certainly there would never be an occasion where the Holy Spirit would inspire someone to speak lightly of Jesus or to speak and call Jesus accursed. And then on the other hand, in verse 3, he says, And that no man uh, can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. In other words, it's by the actual indwelling presence and divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit that a person is made to realize and recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And without this, he could not. You remember the apostles were asked, Whom say ye that I am, Jesus said? And how was it that they recognized Christ as Lord? It was only after the Holy Spirit, or the Father from heaven, revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit to Peter. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said to Peter, I say unto thee that flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. So the, the revelation that Jesus is Lord comes from above. It comes by the Spirit of God. It comes from God. And no man can claim that Jesus is Lord and say that Jesus is Lord. 
but by the Holy Ghost. Then in verse 4, I want you to notice. It says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. All the gifts that the Lord gave to the church at Corinth and to many churches locally, early, were by the same Spirit. Now the reason I said that is because we're going to see, and there's a controversy about this too, what remains of these gifts, Paul teaches us in the 13th chapter after he discusses them and discusses them under the headship of charity, he tells us now in chapter 13, verse 13, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity. He says these three will abide. But he t- tells in verse 8 of the 13th chapter of the tongues that will cease and some things that will vanish away. And uh, he speaks of uh, things that are passing as far as the childhood or the babyhood of the church is concerned. That's why I say even that part is controversial. So, if we'll look at verse uh, 4 again, let's pick it up. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of gifts. And there are differences of administrations. That word administrations means ministries, the ministries of these gifts, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. And then in verse 7 he says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. If it doesn't have some profit in it, if there's not a benefit derived from it, then it, it has no purpose. But he's saying that God gives these things so that there may be a profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. To another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. And I believe that in verse 9 we're uh, dealing with not just ordinary faith, but exceptional, miraculous faith. And also, we're dealing with the gifts of healing, not by the process of natural healing, but by uh, miraculous healing by the same Spirit. And to another, the working of miracles. And of course, this would be in connection with healing at some time, in some time or another. And to another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. When you come to prophecy, you're speaking of those that had the ability. In the early church, there were New Testament prophets for a while that had the power to tell, if you remember in the book of, I believe it's the book of Acts, where one told of a certain drought that was to take place, which did take place, and at the time that they predicted that it would take place. So even in the days of the apostles, there were those that prophesied of things of the future. And not only the gift of prophecy in that way, but prophecy sometimes includes the gift or special gift of preaching the word. But it says in that 10th verse, to another discerning of spirits. To be able to discern whether the, the, the one that is preaching, the one that's speaking, whether he's speaking with uh, the Spirit of God and with understanding, and to discern the truth in the 
prophecy or the preaching that is being done. If you remember John, in the book of 1 John, he tells us to try the spirits, whether they be of God. And the reason he says try them, because he says many false prophets are gone out into the world, and therefore a person does need a discerning spirit so that he may understand and know whether or not that one that uh, is speaking is bringing you the truth of God. If he denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he says that's the spirit of the Antichrist. But he says if any man does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's the one you're to look out for because that is the spirit of Antichrist. Now then, uh, in verse um, 10 again, it says, To another diverse kinds of tongues. And that means different languages that they were miraculously able to speak. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. That the one that was speaking in another language, another tongue, that there was a gift whereby that that tongue or that language could be interpreted so that the bulk of the people that were not of that language could understand it. Verse 11, But all these worketh that one and selfsame spirit. And notice, it says, Dividing to every man severally as he will, as God wills. And we're going to find that all of these things are given to men individually, on, not on the basis of merit, or to churches individually, not on the basis of merit, but as God's sovereign will might uh, dictate these gifts to them and give these gifts to them. Verse 12 says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now here we come to a very uh, important thing. Is the body that the Lord is, that Paul is speaking of here, is this to single out and point to all Christians everywhere as belonging to that body? Or is it, in context here, showing us that the local church is that one body in its functions? Now then, I believe there will be several things that will help us to understand this. And I don't say that uh, we will all agree on it, because uh, the differences of opinion are as wide as can be on this chapter and this subject. But if you look down at verse 27, Paul is speaking yet to the Corinthian church, and he says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now that seems to be very plain. He was speaking to the church at Corinth. He was now telling them that he did not want them to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. And in verse 27, after he had spoken of the body and its functions, and we'll get into that in a moment, he finally says to them, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And so let's keep that in view as we discuss verse 12 and 13. Drop back up now and look at verse 12 and 13. He says, For as the body is one and hath many members, well, if they are the body of Christ, then he's speaking of the many members of that local congregation. Now, if he's speaking of the body of Christ in respect to all believers around the world, then every believer everywhere would be a member of that body. So we might say that in that sense, the body of Christ would be scattered all over the world. 
For wherever believer was a member, he'd be a member of that body. Now, I believe that if, as we look at it, we can see that there are, that it is referring to the local body of this Corinthian church representing the body of Christ and having the functions of a body. If you look, we'll come back to verse 13, and I'll have a lot to say about it in a moment, but let's go on and keep this thought in mind as we look at verse 14, and then we'll come back. For the body is not one member, but many. Well, the body, of course, we know that our physical body is not one member, but many members. So if we refer to our own body, we would have to see the analogy here as it relates to the church. In verse 15, if the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Well, certainly not. We know it is of the body, isn't it? The foot and the ear and the uh, each, each and every member. It says, if the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? Where, where's the ear? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now God, but now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the, in the body as it has pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. In other words, we find that every part of the body is needful, even the feeble members of the body. Some members require more care than the other. Some members of our body require more care. And each member of the human body is dependent upon the other members. And that, so it is in the church that we need each other in the church. God has designed the human body to function as it does, and God has designed the spiritual body here in the church and every member of it to function as it does for the good of the whole. We're going to find as we read that divisions in the church can be prevented by helping uh, the ones in the church that have need. The church will be helped as a whole and and they will all suffer together or be blessed together. We're going to see that where one member of the body suffers, so do the others. And that is true in the local congregation. Let's go on down and read, beginning with verse uh, uh, 19. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That's true in our own physical body, isn't it? That the head couldn't say to the feet, I don't have any need of you. The feet has to do with our walk. We couldn't walk without our feet. The head needs to be there because it's the seat of our intelligence and thinking. We couldn't think of where we wanted to walk. So each member, nay much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. 
And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacks, that there should be no schism in the body or division, but that the members should have the same care one for another. So when we think of our own physical body, we think of the fact that the whole body needs our attention and care. Whether it's a little finger or a big toe, whether it's our feet or our arm, whatever part of our body, it all needs to be considered that it has the same care one for another. In verse 25, that there should be no divisions or schism in the body. Now, verse 26, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Now, here's another reason we might come back and think upon for a moment to see if this uh, body, the thought of the body, relates to the whole of believers everywhere around the world, or does it relate to the this church at Corinth, where if one member suffered, the other member suffered with it. Let's try to put that in a, in a practical thought at this time. Think of it now. If one member, if it refers to the body of Christ as, as around the world, and as uh, referring to all the members of Christianity, wherever they may be, as making up the body, as mostly is taught in the world today, if it refers to the body of Christ in that sense of the word, then when one member over there in China or India or down in South America suffers, do you suffer with it? We might say, well, the cause of Christ suffers, but we do not know anything about that suffering. We do not really suffer with it. Whereas if you bring it down to the local church, if one member of the body of the local church suffers, then we're all so closely connected and function as a body that we certainly do suffer uh, with the other members. We know when one is in need. We know when one is sick. We know when one has problems. We know when one uh, is suffering, and therefore the other members suffer with it. Now, are one member be honored? Suppose the Lord blesses one member of the church, and they're honored with a with a real special blessing that God has saved one of their family, and we know about it here in the local church. We we're honored, or we we rejoice with that member, or maybe they're blessed in some other way and honored. Then. All the members are honored with it and rejoice with it, it says. But now, is that true if it's, a, if it's speaking of the body of Christ as a worldwide body, as a universal church, as a body that's scattered all over the world? I don't think we could say that that is literally that true. But now in verse 27, it makes it very plain. Now, ye, Paul doesn't say we, but he says ye are the body of Christ. He's speaking to this local church in particular. And he says, and members in particular. Now then, uh, if you read verse 28, well, let's, let's drop back for, before we lose our train of thought. We'll pick up with verse 28 after we come back to verse 13. But we didn't want to skip over this. In verse 13, it says in verse 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made... Uh, been all made to drink into one spirit. Now then, this is where there's the greatest controversy and misunderstanding about the meaning of this verse. Some people say that this means that every member of the body of Christ is baptized is baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Now, I would like to read something about that. 
for your hearing that will help us to understand that. And I don't know where you'll stand when we get through, but I would like for you to hear it out. Most of you have heard of, of Arthur W. Pink. He's the editor, well, the author, I should say. His name is Arthur, but he's the author of several good, solid books. That, well, Gleanings in Genesis, Gleanings in Exodus. Uh, there's a great book of the Gospel of John by Arthur W. Pink, and he's a very well-known writer and, and Bible scholar, and he's as good to read after as you've ever found. But I want to read something about him. For almost ten years after his regeneration, after he was born again, the writer never doubted, and it's speaking of him, that the body spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12 had reference to the church universal. In other words, that is as it's scattered all over the world. Now, he had this conviction for ten years. This was taught him by those known as Plymouth Brethren, which is found in the notes of the Schofield Reference Bible. That's what you find in Schofield. And is widely accepted by evangelists and prophetic students. Not until God brought him among Southern Baptists, and he puts in parentheses a high privilege for which he will ever be deeply thankful, did he first hear the above view challenge that instead of the, and I'll try to teach it as I go along, instead of the universal church, he heard it challenged that this could refer to the local church as the body of Christ. But it was difficult for him to weigh impartially an exposition which meant the refutation of a teaching received from men highly respected to say nothing of confessing he had held an altogether erroneous conception so long, and had allowed himself to read 1 Corinthians 12 and similar passages through other men's spectacles. However, of late, the writer had, has been led to make a prayerful and independent study of the subject for himself, with the result that he is obliged to renounce his former view as utterly untenable and unscriptural. Here's a man is one of the best that I've ever read after, that says that finally after ten years and after reading it for himself, instead of taking the other man's word for it, he came to renounce his former view as unscriptural and untenable. Now then, let me give you this. It says the AV, or the authorized version of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, reads as follows. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Now then, concerning this, we shall have more to say lower down. On 1 Corinthians 12, Dr. Schofield, in his reference Bible, has this to say. Chapter 12 concerns the Spirit in relation to the body of Christ. Now, this is in your Schofield Bible. And it says, this relation is twofold. Now, here's what he says. There's two things about this relation. The baptism with the Spirit forms the body by which... By uniting believers to Christ, the risen and glorified head, and to each other. Verses 12 and 13. The symbol of the body, and he puts it in capital, thus formed is the natural human body. And all the analogies are free, freely used. And the second thing, he says, to each believer is given a spiritual enablement and capacity for specific service, and etc. In capitalizing the word body, Dr. Schofield unquestionably has in mind the church universal. In other words, he believes, and your Schofield Bibles all teach this, that it's the, uh, the church universal, that it has to do with all believers everywhere as belonging to the body of Christ and being baptized into that body by the Holy Spirit. Now then, if there's any doubt about this, upon this point, it is once dispelled by a reference to the notes of Dr. Schofield, 
on Hebrews 12, verse 23. And he speaks of the true church composed of the whole number of regenerate persons from Pentecost to the first resurrection. Now, he speaks of those as the true church. Now, then, <clears throat> it says that the first resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. United together into Christ by the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And he refers back to this verse here, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Is the body of which he is the head. It is to be noted that in both places the doctor speaks of the baptism with the Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, there is no mention made of any baptism with the Holy Spirit, either in the English or in the Greek. Such is merely a figment of the doctor's imagination. Now then, the revised version of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 reads, For in one Spirit, in one Spirit, were we all baptized into one body. We believe this is a much better and more accurate translation of the Greek than the A.V. rendering. But we have one fault to find with the R.V. rendering, too. And if you could have looked at that as I read it to you, when you came to in one spirit, they still maintain that spirit had the capital S, which would refer to the Holy Spirit. But we want to see a little different here. It says the capitalizing of the word spirit and it gives you the Greek word in parentheses, a P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I. The capitalizing the word spirit is utterly misleading. And while it is well nigh impossible to get the real meaning of the verse, for the benefit of those who do not read the New Testament in the Greek, we may say that in the language in which the New Testament was originally written, there are no capital letters used except at the beginning of a book or a paragraph. So that you couldn't capitalize the word spirit in one place and not capitalize it in another, except on another basis, that it was not translated that way, but the context would have to show you whether it was referring to the Holy Spirit or to the Spirit in general, that is, we'll put it with a little s, because we know that when it's referring to Holy Spirit, it has the capital S. And in our version here, it does have the capital S. Now then, it says P-N-E-U-M-A, which is the word for spirit in the Greek, is always written in the Greek with a small s. And it is a question of exposition and interpretation, not of translation in any wise whether a small s or a capital S is to be used uh, in each instance where the word spirit is used. So look at this verse now. And just say that the only thing that would determine whether this word spirit were written, look at verse 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free. And we have all been all made to drink into one spirit. The only thing that is really at the bottom of putting the capital S or the small s is the fact that the context would have to show you that that means the Holy Spirit. The context would have to prove, or otherwise it would be naturally put in a small s. And the only reason they put the capital S was because it did show some distinction between Spirit and Holy Spirit. Now then, <clears throat> let me go on. In many instances, it is translated with a small s. Spirit. And it gives references, Matthew 5, 3, Romans 1, 4, 1, 9, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 11, and 5, 3. In others, where the Holy Spirit of God is referred to, <coughs> a capital is rightly employed. Furthermore, the Greek word P-N-E-U-M-A, and I wish I could say it instead of spell it for you every time, 
is used not only to denote sometimes the Holy Spirit of God, and at other times the spirit of man, as distinguished from his soul and body, but is also employed psychologically. We read of the spirit of meekness, and I'll give you these in just a moment. That's 1 Corinthians 4.21. And the spirit of cowardice, 2 Timothy 1.7. And in Philippians 1.27, it says, Stand fast in one spirit. Now, if you look at those verses of Scripture... Might be well if we would stop and look at it. If we don't finish this, we'll get into some more of it in our next lesson. But I feel this is very important. So if you look at First uh, Corinthians, uh, let me see. Let me give you the first reference now again, as I had it. First Corinthians chapter four, verse twenty-one. It says this: What will ye? First Corinthians four, verse twenty-one. Paul says, What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? Now, if you'll notice there, it's a little s, isn't it? And we know that the context would show that it's the spirit by which Paul, the attitude, the way that he would come to these Corinthians. Did he want to come to them with a rod, or should he come to them with a, in the spirit of meekness, referring to a being general among them? And so you have the spirit of meekness there. There's no capital S. So it's evidently referring to the spirit by which Paul and the way, the thought, and accord, and the object, the manner in which Paul would come to the Corinthians when he would come. Now, another reference, if you'll look in the book of 2 Timothy 1.7, we'll find something else. 2 Timothy 1.7. It says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear. The spirit of fear. Now, we know that that's referring to man's spirit, as he might be afraid and fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. He's given us this kind of a spirit. It's our own spirit that he's made not to fear. And in the opposite direction, positively, he's given us the spirit of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Now, he's not talking here about the Holy Spirit, is he? God has not given to us the spirit of fear. We know the Holy Spirit couldn't be the spirit of fear. So we see that it's referring to that human element, or uh, action of the, of our spirit. And then again, Philippians 1.27. You want to turn to Philippians 1.27. Notice what it says here. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. That would be in one frame of mind, with one purpose in view, all in one accord. But the word here is not the Holy Spirit, because it's, Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now then, if you bring this same thought over again into uh, the passage that we're studying, look in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one spirit, what does it mean? Remember that no capitals are found in the Greek that is put in by the meaning of the, the verse of Scripture, or the context of Scripture. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Now then, with one, with oneness of thought, with a one accordness, with one motive and object in view, they were all influenced by the same Spirit to be baptized by water into the, the congregation at Corinth. So look at it from that viewpoint for just a moment. And then we'll see that if they were baptized into this local church at Corinth, just as they were baptized into the church at Jerusalem, they were added 
those that believe were added to the church daily, such as were being saved, were being baptized. Well, then we find that these were also added to this Corinthian church in the same uh, spirit and frame of mind and thought in view. But they were all baptized. Well, they were baptized in water. It doesn't say they were baptized in the Spirit. By one Spirit, with one motive in mind, with one accord, with one object in view, that is to be baptized, as Christians are taught to be baptized, into the one body. And what body would that be then if we come to the local church? It would be that body of the Corinthian church, wouldn't it? That makes up the Corinthian church, the church of Corinth. And it wouldn't make any difference whether they were Jews or Gentiles. Whether they're bond or free, they all had to come the same way to be baptized into that church. And have all uh, made to drink into one spirit. And we'll get into another thought in that. But let's continue this first, the first part of the verse. Now then, if you'll note that in Philippians 1.27, where it says, Stand fast in one spirit, it's precisely the same in every respect as the Greek is at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12.13. And Philippians 1.27, even the translators have used only a small s for spirit, as they most certainly ought to have done in 1 Corinthians 12.13. One other point concerning the Greek. The preposition translated by, by, in 1 Corinthians 12.13 is en, en, and that is in the Greek, which is translated in the New Testament among, a-m-o-n-g, 114 times, it's translated by 142 times, it's translated with 139 times, but the same word that you see here, where it says, for by one spirit, it's translated 1863 times in. You see, if the same thought is coming through in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, there's only 114 times that it would have been translated among. There's only 114 times, I mean 142 times that it would have been translated by. There's only 139 times that it would have been translated with in comparison to 1863 times that the same word is translated in. So what I'm trying to show you that by the context, it could be for in one spirit as well as by one spirit or with one spirit or among one spirit. And because it's in harmony with these other verses that are written in the way that we have uh, read them to you, right out of the, the King James Version, you can see that these three passages we gave you, 1 Corinthians 4.21, 2 Timothy 1.7, and 1 Corinthians, I mean uh, Philippians 1.27, are all given in the same way for in one spirit, in one spirit. We're all baptized into one body. Now then, if you see how many times that the word in is used, it's needless to comment further on it. So it should be this. In one spirit were we all baptized. In one spirit were we all baptized. The baptism here then would not refer to Holy Spirit baptism at all, but water baptism. 